Today's guest is an unusual choice for the Brave Writer podcast. I am so looking forward to you listening in to this freewheeling conversation that I shared with journalist Mosh Wanunu. He is famous on Instagram for his particularly news neutral kind of brand of politics, uh, exploring the headlines, discussing social issues. I invite you today to listen in to the conversation. Maybe resist the temptation to try and figure out if he's left-leaning or right-leaning or what my secret ideals are or what my opinions are. This is a chance to simply be with content. We've talked about this a little bit when I've shared about raising critical thinkers. Not all of your thoughts need to be opinions or votes or verdicts. Sometimes you can just sort of eavesdrop on the conversation, see what strikes you, see what provokes you, see what gives you new insight. That's what I invite you to do today when you listen in on this amazing conversation. One of the things I'll say about Mosh, he is a fabulous conversationalist. For me, the room just sort of disappeared. I forgot that we were on camera and on mic and our conversation became very natural and even pretty personal. You might discover some information or insight about me that you haven't heard before. And I know for a fact, you will be challenged to think about some issues in fresh ways. So I invite you to stay, make a cup of tea or coffee. This episode of the podcast is part one of a two-part interview. We talked so long, I lost track of time. So I know you've got kids underfoot, so we've broken it into two episodes. Today is part one, and I invite you to stay for part two, which will be released in a few days. All right, here we go. Introducing Mosh Wanunu to the podcast. Mosh Wanunu is an award-winning journalist who has 20 years of experience as a reporter and executive producer at a bunch of newsworthy places like CBS, Fox News, Bloomberg TV, Condé Nast Entertainment, and CNBC. He's covered elections, wars, natural disasters, and has produced interviews with dozens of world leaders, including five American presidents. He served as the executive producer of the CBS Evening News and also launched the CBS 24-hour streaming news channel. Most recently, Mosh is the founder of Mo News, a curation service that breaks down headlines from the Mosh Instagram account. And that is spelled M-O-S-H-E-H, at Mosh. And we will put that in the show notes so it's easy for you to find and follow. His account has nearly 300,000 followers on multiple social platforms. He also launched his Mo News newsletter and the Mo News podcast this year. I am excited for you to get to know him. He's been breaking down the headlines and providing context and analysis on news events for his community since March of 2020. Here's my favorite thing. Mosh focuses on verified headlines and he's interested in facts. That's right, friends. If you have raising critical thinkers, you know that a fact is the irreducible information, not nuanced by opinion. I love Moshe's work. He provides a kind of 
news-neutral platform that welcomes perspectives of all kinds. Feel free to hold your own opinion, even when you differ. This is good training for all of us to recognize that we can learn from each other, be interested in each other, understand better where each person comes from. This will absolutely help you raise your children who will not be carbon copies of your beliefs and your opinions. All right, then let's get this conversation started. This is part one of my conversation with Moshe Wanunu. Okay, Moshe, this is exciting for me to have you on the podcast. Thank you for saying yes. I can't wait to get into this conversation. I'm really looking forward to this, Julie. I'm so glad to be on. All right. So we started before I even hit the record button on a very interesting tangent that my own audience will find interesting. I just sort of casually mentioned that I have lived in Morocco. And what did you say? I said my my father was born in Marrakesh, and we understand that my family, first of all, my last name, which has six vowels in it with a yes. O-I, which is a French pronunciation of Wanunu. Wanunu, uh, we understand the family goes back a couple millennia uh, in Morocco to the first Roman expulsion of the Jews, that first group of Jews that kind of went across the Mediterranean, Middle East. Some ended up in Morocco, and we understand that my family was part of that group. That is just mind-blowing to me. You know, I lived in Fez uh, for the first part of my time in Morocco, and there was an entire Jewish enclave there. And I grew up in Los Angeles in an 85% Jewish school district. I was outside the San Fernando Valley, and so, and my whole step family's Jewish. So I have this special, I had this special affinity for going into that part of Fez all the time and understanding a little bit about the history of Judaism in Morocco. So this is mind blowing to me right now. <laughs> it's, oh, I, we could do, I, I would take you on a whole tangent on this podcast, Julie, about the history of Jews in Morocco versus other Arab countries. You had half a million Jews there after World War II. They were loyal to the king because he effectively protected them against the Nazis. That's- that's right. And and the only Jewish museum in the entire Arab world, this is more than two dozen countries, uh, most of whom kicked out the Jews and then literally uh, like deleted any uh, any history or existence. If you, you know, in Egypt, they like eliminated the Jewish cemeteries. They turned into a sewage area. In Morocco, it's the only place where there's actually a Jewish museum and the Jews are protected in uh, by the king in the various government documents. It, it, that's incredible. And that was the experience that I had there. There was just not that sort of prejudice that you would expect in a Muslim country. It was kind of, I mean, it exists. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it was not what I expected. Let me just put it that way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. And, and you know, one of the reasons I'm here today is my dad was part of the emigration. You know, you went from sure. half a million Jews today, you probably have about a thousand left. And so yeah. you do now have, unfortunately, a generation growing up in Morocco that is not, uh, you know, the we went back a few years ago to where the house my dad grew up in, in Marrakesh. Oh, and, my God. And we, I, you know, I was like, my father still speaks fluent Moroccan Arabic, and there's the Arabic of the Jews and the Arabic of the Muslims. Right. And I said, ask them, like, do they know about the Jews that lived here? And they're like, oh yeah, I heard that Jews once lived here, but like, we don't know much about them. And, wow. And so you do realize that not having that diversity anymore, it, it does yeah. impact things. And, and that ultimately the people who live there now are more influenced by what they see in Al Jazeera than sure. their personal experience of, you know, once having neighbors. 
No, that's 100% true. That makes total sense. And of course, I haven't been back to Morocco since 1991. So it's been, again, like the digital revolution has really impacted Arab Spring, all of that. We left after the Gulf War began. So uh, yeah, things are definitely different in the 21st century. Well, that is an amazing connection. I was going to ask you about your last name. So you absolutely nailed it for me. It's it's a question I've been asked since kindergarten when uh, they would you know, call the role in class and there was Miller, Nelson, and then they got to this O last name with so many vowels. And I and I heard the pause and by middle school, I was like, I know who I know. Who that's that's me. That's yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you weren't far from where's is at, which is kind of a similar O spelling. OK, well, let's jump right into the meat of today's conversation. Uh, for me, what I love about your Instagram account, which is how I discovered you, is that you stand out from all that rant style talk radio journalism that I used to love, by the way. I mean, it was sort of its own revelation in the 90s, right? Like late 80s, 90s, there was this feeling of freedom that that talk radio sort of engendered, like, I can say whatever I want. I am not restricted by the fairness doctrine. And yet... I think we're all exhausted from that kind of radio. Can you tell me a little bit, how do you define what you do in journalism? Well, it's so interesting because I, I came from the cable news world. I came from the network news world. And, you know, it's fascinating when you look in the history, actually, of American journalism, that we've gone through these waves, Julia, like where there was a time, you know, uh, in American history, this is the revolutionary era, where we were hyper-partisan, right? Like, yes. Thomas Jefferson had his own newsletter. Alexander Hamilton had his own newsletter. And they would like spread rumors about each other. And John Adams and and like, you know, and, and that's where like, even if you've seen the Broadway show Hamilton, they go into like the details of Alexander Hamilton's affair. And that was spread by the Jeffersonians who didn't want him to. And so it's, so we go through that period and we have a period called yellow journalism. And then finally in the 20th century, we have this period of like objective media or ostensibly objective media where we're going to run it down the middle. And that was a new concept. And so then you lay out just now like 80s and 90s, we get to talk radio where there's opinion again. And so when I come to when I come into journalism, I go to school in, in D.C. at GW. Uh, I, I, I have a fascination with journalism from a very young age, mm. um, like age five, Julie. Like, Love I it. Loved it. And so I come into journalism. My first job is at uh, Fox News, but at Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace, which is the Sunday show. Oh, wow. And yeah, if you're familiar, like he was one of the, the best to do that. Um, the Sunday show moderator. Yes. And, and there was a time where like the big political headlines each week were made on Sunday morning on Meet the Press, on Fox yes, News Sunday. That's on right. TV, on This Week. I grew up watching This Week with David Brinkley with my father. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> and so I get a job working for Chris Wallace, but he's Fox News Sunday and he calls balls and strikes on both parties. And so my experience in cable news initially was well, I work at Fox News, which, you know, has its own biases or opinion shows at night. But I work for Chris Wallace, where, like, we, I began my career grilling Condoleezza Rice or pre preparing interviews for him to, you know, grill Dick Cheney and Condi Rice and Don oh, Rumsfeld wow. about Iraq and then have on Chuck Schumer and, you know, Nancy Pelosi to grill them and Howard Dean at the time and various <laughs> Oh, <things>. yeah. <laughs> and, and so I start from a place where I, I am an umpire, I'm a referee. And what I do in journalism is um, call out what's factual and call out uh, what's not. And 
ask the people who are in charge why they're doing what they're doing, and then call them out. And what's interesting about a Sunday show, and this is still, you know, there's still really good moderators who do it, Chuck Todd, Margaret Brennan, et cetera, who host these shows. Um, we'll prepare an interview and we'll go in knowing the answers we might get. And so then the most interesting questions we prepare is the secondary question. Uh, hey, uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, tell me why, you know, you're, you're passing X. Well, we know what his answer is going to be. The more interesting thing is the follow-up, which, and this is, was my job for Chris, and this is straight out of college. My job is uh, dig up if he was ever a hypocrite on this, or he ever had the opposite to say on this, or um, what is actually happening in Kentucky, or what is ha- who his big donor is. You know, deal with, in fact, so it's like, well, it's interesting you say that because we've seen where you're funding is coming from. We've seen that 20 years ago when Democrats ran things, you said the opposite. And so that is, to me, that was the core of journalism, at least as I uh, as I began it. And that's something I try to actually carry through to this day um, on Instagram, which is um, being a voice. I won't say a voice for the voiceless, though that's an expression used in journalism, but being a voice for everybody, speaking for everyone at home who doesn't have the opportunity to be in the White House press briefing room and ask questions of of the president, who doesn't have an opportunity to walk the halls of of Congress and question the senators and congressmen. And that to me, it was a a privilege uh, to be able to walk. You know, I started my career in Washington where I got to ask the big questions of the people who were making the huge decisions that historic decisions. Um, And so ultimately to me, journalism is calling balls and strikes. Uh, being a referee um, and mm. trying to ensure that uh, that what people care about uh, is heard by the media and then brought to the people who are making the decisions. Yeah, that oh, I love that. I, so, really, what's striking me while you're talking is that we have access in a way that maybe historically didn't exist um, because we've got microphones everywhere. We've got video cameras everywhere. Now everybody has literally video journalism power in their own phones. And so what you're trying to do is actually surface as much of that material as possible so that we're not limited to just one storyline or one understanding that somebody um, interprets for themselves. How do we manage this glut? I, I've sort of made this um, <laughs> this observation. Tell me if you think it's true. I think we are in a collective PTSD from visual media. You know, it's only been 150 years that we've even had the capacity to film and take accurate photographs, really. And so before that, everything was in writing. There was a certain uh, restraint. It was limited by the capacity to transport that communication. Now things are instant, they're visual, and there is so much volume. It's very difficult to sort through. So even when you said that about like, find out if they've ever had a different opinion about this, you know, I mean, my opinions change three times on a Tuesday morning just based on what I'm reading. So is that fair? Is this sort of um, digital record that we have now, this visual capture of every moment of our lives, fair to us in journalism, in reporting? Uh, you know, it's it's so interesting because it strikes me as as you began to ask your second question that the world I described is the pre-social media world because that's when I got yes, started, right? It's and true. it's not that long ago. Like I I, I I speak to groups of students, um, uh, junior high students, high school students, college students, and I'm like, listen, I, I just turned forty, uh, <laughs> but 
I will tell you that when I began my career, there was no YouTube. There was no Facebook. There was no Twitter. It was the mid 2000s, right? So it's not like I didn't start my career in the 1950s. It was 2005. But like we didn't have... We didn't have this stuff. I remember covering like, oh, the first use of YouTube by a politician. Like, what's it going to do? And so uh, I, I will say that now we, we all have access. And, you know, you see politicians responding to people on Twitter, right? Responding yes. to people on social yes. media, doing Instagram lives. Um, and now a lot of people have access to politicians in a, in a way that journalists only once had. Uh, that doesn't diminish the need for uh, journalism and, you know, the need to bring facts and experience and context and knowledge about these issues. And so I think that, you know, I'm a couple of, I'm of a couple minds about it because like I grew up in a journalism where like you hold these people accountable and every single thing um, <laughs> that they've ever said and ever done and everything that their uncle once did and everything that their second cousin once did, like is something we bring up. And you know what that's done, Julie, is that that has led a lot of good people in politics to leave politics. Yeah. And and it is one or of the reasons- never, Or never join. Or or these <laughs> days, never join. You're like, you want me to get into that business? Yeah. For what? Because right. I'm going to just drag, you know, the media and everyone's going to drag my family through the mud. The other side is going to drag my family through the mud. And ultimately, like, I, you know, I can have an impact through working for a nonprofit or frankly, go make money right. in the business, in the private sector somewhere. That's right. And- and so like it's ultimately comes down to like striking a balance here between utilizing information, history, the historic record to help uh, explain, you know, and that's something where, you know, w- that I try to do with my platforms, especially on Instagram is like, you know, it feels like a, to a lot of people who desperately want to know why things are going on the way they are, but they've come into this in the middle of a movie. Right. Like, and, and civics education is what it is, but like, you know, people like will send me a DM, like apologizing, like explain to me, like what the electoral college is again, explain to me how many Supreme court justices we have again. Like these are things which, um, you know, aren't relevant, could not be, maybe aren't relevant to your life for maybe decades. And then they become hyper relevant to the future of this country. And you're like, wait, what did I learn in eighth grade again about why? And, and so what I try to do is like, People are like, wait, I don't understand Afghanistan. Like, this is crazy. And I'm like, well, we really got to look back to when the British invaded in the 1800s or Ukraine. Like, what's why does Putin think that Ukraine's part of his? I was like, well, we got to go back a thousand years to the origins of the Russian uh, civilization and the first capital of Kiev, right? And then the Middle East, if we're going to go farther back, is like, explain to me the Israelis and the Palestinians. I was like, where do you want to start? (laughs) And and, and in some cases, like, let me, let me explain the Old Testament to you. Yeah, I was just going to say Moses, maybe. (laughs) Moses made his way to the land that is literally being disputed today. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, and they're like, and I was like, and so there, because I'll get a question like, who was there first? I'm like, well, when do you want to start? (laughs) Because we're literally talking about thousands of years. Yeah. And, and, and so I think history is important. Those data points are important, but I, we've gotten to the point now where like when everything matters and everything is chaos, nothing matters. Right. And, um, 
it's an issue that we're facing right now. Yeah, and it's it's a volume issue too, right? The the volume. I I remember as a child, so I'm older than you, I'm 60. So I remember as a child growing up with the Vietnam War and seeing those newsreels at night and um, every night we would see bombs, we'd see napalm, Agent Orange, originally in black and white television, so not even in color. And it was fast forward several decades, I had children, we went and visited uh, Little Saigon in Los Angeles, so a Vietnamese community there in Orange County. Uh, my husband and I and our five kids went to a bakery, and then we walked through a strip mall, and all the signs, you know, were in Vietnamese. And we wound up in an artist studio, and this artist had these gorgeous paintings that he had done of Vietnam on his wall, and I was shocked because I had never imagined that Vietnam was beautiful. In my mind, Vietnam was ugly. It was um, bombed out. Uh, all the jungle foliage was gone. People were in rags. You know, there's that famous um, image of a woman running with the bomb blowing up behind her and her clothing yeah. is just singed. Those were my impressions of Vietnam. And suddenly I saw this world through his artwork that I had never known and did not realize how lodged in my personal experience the war was without any other context, even though I grew up and became a history major at UCLA. It's not like I was studying, you know, some other subject like math. I was literally learning. But those images implant themselves and they shape your opinions and feelings about people. And I realized listening to him, we asked his story. He had been a boat person. His entire family drowned in a boat that he sent ahead of him. So he had this massively tragic story. And yet in his memory was this beautiful country that meant so much to him. And I just felt in that moment, I write a little bit about it in Raising Critical Thinkers, the power of encounter. When you go from yeah. just reading or seeing a newsreel or hearing an experience to actually shifting the power dynamic and learning something you could not have known otherwise. And it reveals your bias. Oh, a, th a thousand percent. We we are, you know, like we we were talking just before this, before we before you hit record, Julie. Yes. About <laughs> uh, bias, and you know, some people on Instagram will send me a note like, "I love Mosh," uh, or "I follow Mosh because he's unbiased." I'm like, well, I am not unbiased. No <laughs> one is unbiased. I try my best to be neutral on things, but ultimately, like the the media you consume shapes you where you grew up shapes you. The um, economic background of your parents and your economic shapes you. Your education, where you got it, shapes you. Um, there's all these elements shape who you are and how you perceive the world. And so it shapes as an American, how you perceive the underdog, how you perceive right. the aggressor, how you perceive various cultures. You know, those who grew up around who, you know, like it's so, I'm gonna find it interesting to see kind of how Gen Z approaches things in the Middle East. Because for those of us millennials and up, um, you know, 9-11 was such an experience, the war yes. on terrorism, Afghanistan, Iraq. Yes. So our views of that region, uh, of Islam, of, of the Arab world, are, are uh, there's a bias there because of what we witnessed uh, through an American lens, right? And so it was interesting hearing you speak about those newsre newsreels from Vietnam. So I had the good fortune, my last job before I went independent here, was running the CBS Evening News. Oh, wow. And, and so I was executive producer of the Evening mm -hmm. News in its 
70th year on TV. It started in 1948 as a 15-minute newscast um, around the time of Cronkite in the early 60s. It goes to 30 minutes. And at the time, they're like, how are you going to fill 30 minutes of news? Is there enough news for that? The same issue, by the way, came when CNN gets created in 1981. Oh, yeah. Uh, 1980, But they're like, how are you going to fill 24 hours? And now we can laugh at that. Like, yes. fill 24 hours. We can't get to all of it in 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, it's but amazing. It actually, in talking to, the, to some of my colleagues who were there through the Vietnam era. And that was one of the cool things working at CBS. It's like, it's like working in a museum. I bet. And they were like, listen, we'd shoot the, the film in Vietnam and it would likely air two to three days later, depending on the planes that made its way to New York. Yeah, wow. And it struck me because during Afghanistan, there were these iconic images that very much mimic Saigon of the helicopter leaving the embassy and you... You know, I, I think we you saw the side by sides, yes. right? The people running on the on the airport uh, tarmac yep. to catch a plane. Same images came out of Vietnam in the seventies. In Afghanistan in twenty twenty one, we were watching that live. You could watch that live yeah. on your phone. Yeah. Um, you didn't have to wait, and that immediacy also, I think, creates a certain level of stress on all of us because we now see every crisis in the world at our fingertips live. Exactly, it gets overwhelming. You can't. You can't sustain that. I mean, I I was at a birthday party when we did Shock and Awe in Iraq. And literally, the adults left the room to go watch yeah. a live March, action March bombing. Yep, yeah, exactly. And I think yeah. that's, you know, um, same thing. I lived in Morocco when we had the first war, the Gulf War, and we were on European time, right? So we weren't in the States. And so we got up early and we're watching it on TV. And of course, having grown up from the 60s, that was just mind-blowing that you could watch the start of a war and just watch it on live TV like it's a, a movie. And I think that's one of the things that concerns me. And so I would love for you to help me understand what makes a current event or issue newsworthy versus it just becoming infotainment or even... Um, sensationalizing war and turning it into something that, you know, I'm eating popcorn, watching TV. I have an opinion about it. I'm not there on the ground. I have no idea the terror of what's going on. I'm just popping off based on having watched other wars on TV, right? You know, it's so interesting in your question, a current event can be both newsworthy and turned into infotainment at the same time. Uh. And, and, you know, I admittedly will, you know, when we did election coverage at CBS or my days at Fox, et cetera, you can see in our political coverage in this country, the way the media covers things. And by the way, you know, it's not so different abroad either, uh, that we've turned it into a sports event in one corner, in the other corner. Oh, God. You know, it, like you'll watch the introductions to the presidential debates in you know, the primary debates, and it feels like you're watching something out of Vegas. You feel like you're watching a boxing event. That's <laughs> true. And, and what is TV? TV is trying to um, get ratings right? They're trying to keep people interested. And unfortunately, what that means is they turn legitimate uh, issues and things like a presidential debate, right? Where there's major issues facing this country. And then at the end of the hour and a half, you're like, they forgot, they didn't ask about education. They didn't ask about the environment. Yeah. Um, they, a lot of it became uh, candidate one. You once called candidate two an idiot. Candidate two, do you want to respond to candidate one? Um, and I remember being in a prep room and being like, okay, let's, let's get them to get into it or whatever. Um, and that's where, you know, I think journalists go, um, you know, the, the competing interests of keeping a compelling broadcast yes. going and not turning it into PBS 
no insult to PBS, they do a great job. But um, ultimately, PBS is, is funded by donors and partially by the government and doesn't have to worry about commercials. Correct. Over, over at the networks and the way the private media work in the U.S., they are funded by advertisement. They are funded by clicks. They need to get you to click on the link online. They need you to stick around through the commercial break because that is how they get paid. And they're part of publicly traded companies. Disney owns ABC. Comcast owns NBC. Paramount owns CBS. Discovery, Warner Media owns CNN. Um, News Corp owns Fox. These are all huge companies that have shareholders and quarterly earnings, and they need to know that their news division is making money. There's a great story at CBS, um, so I'm told. So, you know, there's a, a senior correspondent. He retired recently named Bill Plant, and he joined in the 1960s. And he was talking about Cronkite and Murrow and Severi and, you know, all these, you know, the, the greats, the legends of uh, CBS. And he said that there was major concern at CBS in the late 70s when the news division for the first time turns a profit the because until then it was a public service you did news sure. as a public service sure You're, and when the when the corporate uh when the corporate uh, c-suite saw that the news division could make money like this is not good for us long term <laughs> and no. so i i but i want to get back to your question which is newsworthy versus infotainment yeah you know, i think that there's a lot of standards by which news organizations and even my myself uh me me by myself like standards we use to determine news and one is like timeliness. Did it happen new? Does it is it happening to a prominent person? Is it happening to an issue that's important to folks? Um, relevancy, um, impact. Um, uh, there's a whole variety of of uh, you know. Recently, the last time I covered this issue, did people care about it? Okay, that's something I'm going to use as a data point uh, for TV. That's ratings. Did that rate last time? Oh, yes, nobody watched yes. that. We're not going to cover that anymore. Yeah. Um, and so for me newsworthiness is is all about relevancy and impact on our lives on, mm. on our families on our homes on our pocketbooks um and sometimes i i also you know don't want to sit there and be judgy and this is something the media does sometimes and i hate the term the media but i'm guilty of using it too because there's right. so much there's so many media out there julie there's oh I, oh there are yeah go ahead <laughs> but the other thing the media does sometimes is they judge they're like oh i'm not covering that like that's a that's a nonsense story. And I'm like, well, it's the most trending thing on Twitter. It's the biggest thing on Facebook right now. They're like, yeah, but that's like silly. That's something Trump threw out there or something X threw out there or something a company wants to be. I was like, regardless of why it is out there, people are talking about it. They want to understand it. Don't judge it. And so as much as I try to bring up important stories, at the same time, I try to be responsive and say, listen, I know this is a question you all have. This is a rumor that's going around. Let's talk about it. Um, let me bring you some context to it. And sometimes it's, you know, dismiss, you know, like this is what it is in one line or actually there's a long history here and this is the reason, you know, you might've heard about it. Did you dread September when you were a kid? I know I really loved school, but there was also something bittersweet about leaving summer behind. And I know that our kids sometimes feel the same way. They feel the freedom and looseness of summer kind of disappear or dissolve into the expectations of the homeschooling parent, right? You're suddenly all about the ship-shape order of the day where you used to be about popsicles and sprinklers, right? So here we go, easing into the school year. And even if your kids are back in traditional school, 
they might be feeling like they've lost something, something of freedom, something of self-expression. Well, we've got a way in Brave Writer to help your kids ease back into their life of academics after that sort of liberating experience of summer. Sometimes a three to four week online class provides a great transition to the school year. We have some that are absolute crowd pleasers. They tap into your child's individuality, passions, and interests. It's a way to get them on board with writing this year without them really understanding that's what's happening because they're going to experience it as joy, as play, as immersion, as self-expression. One of our most popular classes with kids who are ages 9 to 14 is called Writing a Greek Myth. This class allows your kids who are fascinated by Greek gods and goddesses to retell a tale of their own modeled after a Greek myth. This class is designed for students to work directly with a Brave Writer instructor. Parental involvement is not required. They're going to read selected myths from Doe Lair's book of Greek myths, something you can just borrow from the library, and then they'll be guided to identify the key literary elements common in these compelling stories. Once they've had a chance to sort of explore the myth, they're going to take a crack at writing their own. My own daughter wrote a Greek myth about the goddess of hope. And it is beautiful. She incorporated other Greek gods that she had studied when we were doing ancient Greece as our history for our homeschool year. So this is a beautiful class. It runs August 29th to September 23rd. Or if you need to start a little later in the semester, check out November 7th to December 2nd. There are still seats in each of those classes. Another great way to kick off the school year is with our book clubs. We have one called the Arrow Book Club and another called the Boomerang Book Club. The Arrow Book Club is designed for kids who are 9 through 12. And the book that we will be reading in September is called Red, White, and Whole by Rajani LaRocca. And it is about a young girl who is an Indian American student. So that one is starting September 1st. And the other book club, the Boomerang Book Club, is for kids 11 to 18. And the book we're reading for September is The Runes of Gorlin. It is a Ranger's Apprentice book, which is a series by John Flanagan. Uh, This is a fabulous story of a 15-year-old protagonist who is on a quest, something that kids really love. What I love about our book clubs is that they give your kids a chance to simply type their thoughts. They don't even know they're learning to write, but that's exactly what's going on. We provide them with stimulating book club discussion questions, and they interact with other students in the class. Our online class program is not video-based. It is asynchronous. You can log in wherever you live around the entire globe and participate. The teachers are real people, and they engage through this discussion board model that is secure, password-protected, and proprietary to Brave Writer. So you are not on some social media platform. You are literally inside the Brave Writer space, all protected and safe. These three classes are good examples of what we offer in Brave Writer, but we also have classes like um, elementary writing, animal stories, 
essay prep, reading the essay, college admissions essay for your high schoolers. That one starts August 29th. It uses the common app format and it gets your kids ready if they are applying to college this year. I invite you to visit our Brave Writer online class description page uh, by going to bravewriter.com slash online dash classes. We'll put that in the show notes and we will also link to the classes that I mentioned here. We look forward to serving your family, whether you homeschool or not, in one of our online class programs this year. I think that's really uh, uh, helpful to realize that there is this capitalist drive behind the ratings of shows. Uh, And I, I think it's one of the really infuriating aspects of our cable generation. And I don't know if everyone can even remember, but I mean, you probably can't even remember when the Fairness Doctrine was actually uh, a part of the way that I news was, got covered. You were a I, child. That was a, <laughs> I was a very young, it was even before, it was even before I, uh, I, I was trying to learn how to read through the Chicago Tribune in kindergarten. Oh my gosh, you're so adorable. No, here's the thing. Uh, so I remember the nightly news and I remember, you know, uh, news coverage from before cable came along. And the belief system at the time was because we have limited channels and there were like nine, there were like nine channels, you know, it wasn't hundreds, there were nine. And we all watched the news around the same time and we just picked which network we liked best. They felt the need to represent both sides, but there was this underlying feeling that the media skewed a little bit left. And so at the time that cable really came along, the Fairness Doctrine was reevaluated. Of course, this is under Reagan. And the Mm -hmm. idea was that, well, if lots of different viewpoints are available through all these other channels, we no longer have to require each of the major networks to cover both sides of every issue or the multiple sides of any one issue uh, because people will have the freedom now to go find it. And what happened instead is everybody just siloed. They're like, well, these people agree with me. I'm just going to go and listen to those people. And so now there is sort of an absence of a diversity of perspectives. Do you feel like we are reclaiming some of that then through social media in accounts like yours? Is that what's happening right now? I, I try and I try to reach out to people who are willing to have their assumptions questioned, mm. who are willing to have their beliefs question. Because Julie, I'll add to the, so the fairness doctrine goes away, the cable rises up, you know, Fox starts with a, you know, a good idea, which is contrarian, which is, and yeah. by the way, there was inherent bias in what the networks yes. were covering. Yeah, right? yeah, because, I would agree with that. And, and and I can look around a newsroom and it was a lot of privately educated, a lot of Ivy Leaguers, a lot right. of people who live in, New, mostly people who live in New York and Washington, D.C., and there was a feeling at Fox when it starts in 96 that like, hey, half the country's not represented. Like, I, f- I feel judged if I go to church on Sunday. I feel judged totally. if I'm pro-life. I feel judged if, uh, you know, I, I homeschool my kids. Right. You know, because there's an inherent totally. bias in them, which is yep. ironic because so many people in the media send their kids to private school. And yet there's a public school bias when it comes. So, you know, we can go in deep into that and my experience <laughs> in the newsroom. We might have but, to make this a two-parter if we do that. <laughs> I would love to talk about that, and, honestly. And 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 so hold on. So now you have you have this kind of bifurcation, multifurcation. I'm making up words of the media, 
Right. And people can be like, you know, I just care about animals. I'm watching the Discovery Channel. I just care about uh, conservative. I just want my conservative opinion. I go to Fox. I want my liberal opinion. I go to MSNBC. Now add to that the tech companies, Julie. Oh, God, I know. Okay. <laughs> so now, now the tech companies are really the biggest media companies in the world. They're worth yep. much more than the, the oh. you know, the traditional media. And they have far more eyeballs. I mean, far it's not even eyeballs. close. And they weren't developed to do news. No. They, you know, Mark Zuckerberg created Facebook to find girls at Harvard and right. eventually became like the global social network. Twitter was like Jack Dorsey's idea to just like put out your thoughts and what you were eating, right? And no, it turns into like one of the like, most influential political, uh, yeah. you know, tools globally. We saw it most prominently with the last president. And so, um, you know, Snapchat is like to send pictures of your friends. TikTok was to make like videos of you dancing. Yeah, Instagram, I mean, Snap, Snapchat was really um, to be able to send naked pictures. Like it correct. was literally it was all a pornography. Yeah, it was a, it was a pornographic <laughs> well, motivation. Uh, well, I was going to say that wasn't <laughs> the exact motivation of the founders, as I understand it. That was the how people used it. <laughs> I don't I buy it. <laughs> okay. You're like, you're like, I know what they really were. Yeah, don't we all think we it. know? But um, you're right. You're right. They they were social tools. They were not tools, news tools. They were not, not journalism. And and their goal is to keep you on the platform for as long as possible. So, That's right. <laughs> then you have That's media. Right. People are not consuming media on these tools. So the media goes to these tools. So the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, everybody has accounts on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, etc. And how are they getting their traffic, their digital money, their capital dollars? They have to get you to click on their stories on social media. So they're going more sensational. And then on top of that, the tech platforms are not letting you really, now they're self-selecting for you. They have an algorithm. They I think know. they know Julie. Julie clicked on that it. story, so I'm gonna feed her more. Julie clicked on that story, so I'm gonna feed her more. And all the studies have shown that they keep taking you to more extreme uh, viewpoints because they want to upset you. And they found that you will stay longer on Facebook if you're mad as opposed to happy. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And so that's the situation we're in now is I'm trying to break through that ironically on a social media platform, or at least I began there on Instagram. Um, but at the same time, I'm fighting the algorithm. I'm fighting the the algorithmic gods of, of Instagram because the the way these platforms work is to feed you content that reinforces your viewpoint. And we've gotten to the point now where everything is political. COVID became, you know, we're the country that made COVID the most political out of any country. I, I know. That was that was stunning. And and you know, every issue is now through the lens of politics. Everything in sports, uh, everything in health, everything in Holly, like everything is through now through a political lens. And unfortunately, it gets reinforced. And, you know, I've seen it with like, you know, my dad who's 72 in Chicago, his Facebook feed. I'm like, oh my God. Like, he's like, I don't even follow this. And I'm like, this is, I know how you, I think I know how you got here, but this is what they're feeding you. <laughs> I mean, that's true with my own dad. And yeah. I've really watched it. And one of the things I've wondered, I, this is not on my list of questions, but I think it's a fascinating one because we're talking about you know, my audience is parents of children who are trying to bring an education and critical thinking, and they're trying to make their way through this morass. And when I look at the generations, each generation has a different relationship to social media and the news. So when I look at like your dad, my dad is in his 80s. When I look at that generation, uh, they, and my dad's a, a 
a lawyer. He's an attorney, a trial litigator. So he understands how to build arguments and how to vet sources. It's not like he was, you know, outside the world of argument and suddenly is being somehow influenced by social media or the cable news. But what I've noticed is how much when he can create a logic story that reinforces what he believes, he camps there and lives there and finds more sources that double that down. And then my generation, I mean, there's plenty of us like that in my generation. I always say we're kind of hopeless. You can't really do anything with us. But we, my generation is the conversion generation. And it's, I have a view, you have a view. One of us has to convert. There's there's no other option. We don't really have like both of us come to the table and work on a solution that honors both of us. It's I have a point of view. You have a point of view. We're going to like just get in the ring and have the big boxing match, the Vegas match, like you said. But then I feel like kids who are being raised in this generation and maybe your age group that sort of straddles the two has a little more healthy cynicism about what they're reading. They're not just starting from the premise, well, if someone linked to an article, the article couldn't have been published unless there was truth in it, right? But that's how I feel like my generation and up acts. It's as though, well, if it got published, there must be some content here that I can trust. Do you understand what I'm saying? Totally, but I will say, uh, if it makes you feel any better, that (laughs) um, I I do get questions from people in the Gen Z generation, in the millennial generation, who are, I think they call us digital natives, so to speak, right? I always say Um, we speak the internet with an accent. Yeah. (laughs) And by the way, I will admit, uh, as a as a elder millennial, I'm born 1982, which officially is the right. first year of millennials, apparently. But I have very little in common with my fellow millennial, millennials born in the late in the mid 90s. Right. Uh, we apparently run till 96. You know, I, my I remember I'd write out my papers, and my mother would type them on a typewriter through fourth grade. Yes. I didn't have a computer yet. So just to give a sense, like as a millennial, that was my experience in the early 90s. Right. One of the interesting things I'll tell you is that, and maybe this speaks to the issue of the older generations, is there are now so many websites out there that are either out there for clickbait, in some cases, they're misinformation, in some cases, they're disinformation. Yeah, deliberately, right? Right, disinformation is deliberate, right? You either are a company, a politician, a country that is is, is specifically and, um, uh, uh, you know, aggressively trying to put out bad information. Misinformation is just like, oh, like we messed that up. You know, right. my bad. Right. Um, and and so disinformation is a problem. And so people will send me a link like, hey, why aren't you reporting this story? I'm like, did you see the website that you sent me? And they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, usaaanews.com.net. I was like, have you heard of this place before? <laughs> no. I'm like, well, that might be our first problem. And I, <laughs> I, I, I think that, and by the way, I don't say that to um, um, insult anyone. No. You know, at the end of the day, no. people are busy they have jobs, they have kids, they have things to do. They don't have time to vet sources. But the first thing you should do is like, what's the link? What's the source? Can you take a moment to Google this story that you think is so controversial or you know, so upsetting or so great if it reinforces your viewpoint? Put in a Google News search, news.google.com. Is any website or source that you've ever heard of covering it, or is it a random Indian newspaper and a bunch of websites that you haven't heard of before? Yeah. And by the way, there's a lot of these fake sites that are coming out of India now. I guess they've they've used it. I need to look into this actually. But you know, that's like the first step uh, yes. in terms of like ensuring 
that you can like vet your sources and vet your information. And just because it comes from social, remember, it might be being fed to you by the algorithm. And social media does not do a great job of blocking out fake accounts or illegitimate accounts. And But I understand and I'm compassionate to this because at the same time, people are so skeptical of the traditional media. And so they're like, well, CNN is garbage. So I, you know, I'm going to go with this website. I'm like, well, this website actually doesn't, has no legitimacy whatsoever. And so it was very interesting covering Ukraine because people are like, mm. well, I don't trust CNN. I'm like, no, let me tell you on an issue like Ukraine, CNN has like 200 reporters around the region. Uh, Clarissa Ward, I know her well. I worked with her at Fox News. Like she's not making things up from the subway of Kiev. Like she's actually in the subway. Yeah, she but was see, incredible. God, totally. I, and by the way, that's what those were the glory days of CNN. Like just I know. to that. I but, know it's true. That is what they were good at. Anderson Cooper out there all the time. I mean, oh, that's so true. You know, when you said that, um, one of the things that went through my mind is that when we are being fed this information, you said we're busy. A lot of times we have this confirmation bias. So one of the ways that I investigate my own bias, I have two sort of metrics. I, I use self-awareness more than I use what's going on uh, externally. So I start with, does this make me happy? Yes. If I'm reading it and I'm happy and I'm feeling a little smug, maybe this is the time for me to like hop off the article and actually double check the source. You know, they call it reading you're, laterally in this one Stanford. You're cutting off your dopamine rush. Yes, <laughs> yes, the very good. Yes, exactly. Because I think critical thinking takes that self-awareness. It's not just being able to be critical of the guy over there who I don't agree with. It's the capacity to recognize when your own bias kicks into gear. Are you mm. getting that dopamine rush? Or are you getting the outrage rush, which actually is the thing we like better? We're like scrolling through and my 30 years ago high school friend says some stupid thing that I can't believe they believe. And I feel smug. So then I have to stop and actually contextualize the person, the source, the story that I know about them, why they might believe this, and how it's improving their life to hold that view. I think a lot of times what we focus on is truth versus falsehood, when mm. really people attach to beliefs that make their lives better. That's what they're doing. They're like, I have a perception of what the world ought to be, what it ought to feel like to me. I read this article, it makes my life feel better. You brought up COVID and I, I wanna bring this up because I think it's a really interesting one in the homeschool space. So we've got parents and kids, we're staying home from school already. It's pretty natural for us. Uh, the COVID, you know, instant understanding was we should all mask. And right. homeschool became a cottage industry of mask production in the lockdown. Like everywhere on Instagram, you see these moms and kids sewing masks and giving them away and selling them. And within a month, masks were gone. The yeah. debate was over. And this whole community that had embraced the idea of masking suddenly didn't. And for me, what was fascinating was asking the question, what changed? What about the, was it data? Was it leadership? Was it um, some, you know, a community identity? And those are the stories that make me so curious. How do we talk to our children about reality, about what is going on in the world and what our influences are? Like, why did that realignment occur? It was fascinating to watch it in real time. 
Oh, completely. And I think the problem that people had is everyone is seeking certainty and immediate gratification. And what we've been living through in the past couple of years was literally us figuring it out as we went. And so people in the beginning were like, tell me what I need to do. And so they came up with what they need to do. Science itself is a process. Science is a, is a, and people didn't want like, well, you told me, remember when Fauci said we didn't need masks and now we need masks. And like, I don't believe them anymore. Like, well, can you believe that maybe they learned something through the process? Maybe like you, like, and this is something we don't respect with politicians. The politicians aren't honest about it. Like we were talking about earlier, like, well, you know, you said 20 years ago, what if a politician just said, listen, I've evolved, I've learned. And you've seen a few examples of it. Uh, you know, you even you saw with, you know, Biden, like Biden, by the way, was effectively a pro-lifer in the late 70s. He questioned Roe v. Wade. Now he's the Democratic president who's fighting to, you know, uh, keep abortion rights. And he said, listen, Iva, gay marriage is a, a, a really I was going to say gay marriage is the most clear example of that. And you go all the way back to Don't Ask, Don't Tell with Bill Clinton. I always said, do you think the Clintons were ever against gay marriage? I don't think so. But could they even be openly? They were on a journey. And Obama, good example of that as well. Totally. And by the way, Obama declaring, uh, and by the way, Obama in 08 ran wouldn't say that he supported gay marriage, okay? People forget this. I had the good fortune, I, and I, you know, if someone's into a really long read, there's a new book out by a friend of mine, Sasha Eisenberg, who's a reporter, and he wrote a 900-page book on the history of gay marriage. And what's incredible here, Julie, is that we went from 1991 to 2015, a 24-year period, um, where even the, the the LGBT community in the early 90s was like, we don't need to get married. Like, that's something for, like, that's just a problem. We have other issues we need to deal with in this community. AIDS was still an issue, et cetera. We had a two decade from them not even thinking it was important to the Supreme Court making it legal. We had an opinion that changed, like, in on an issue that we have never seen change in this country. And it's incredible to see um, what happened here. And it takes me back, but I want to go back to your COVID question because, you know, I think people are looking for certainty. And ultimately, we live in a world of evolution. We live in a world of uh, people evolving their opinions and learning things over time. We live in a, in an, a, a world of grays, not black and white. But people only want to say, "I'm right, you're wrong. I was wrong, you were right." You know, wh whatever. And there's this feeling like, you know, we're each flying our flag for our teams. What strikes me is the maps I see, uh, our political maps, that we used to live in a purple country um, where we all, you know, our neighbors um, were, you know, one neighbor is a Democrat, one neighbor is a Republican. We could still come together. We're, you know, bowling, in a, you know, in a bowling league together. I mean, it's a, it's a different society pre-social media. And now if you look at maps on how people are voting, there's red America and there's blue dots, you know, where the cities are, et cetera. And that's the America. And literally people are moving away from people who disagree with them to places where they agree politically. That is what has happened. And when it comes to COVID, I just feel like, you know, it, it pretty quickly, some people I think um, in leadership took advantage of uh, the situation to reinforce uh, It just became political way too quickly. And, you know, like there's studies on masks and they evolved. And guess what? There's a certain truth to 
like certain types of masks being effective. It didn't become masks don't work. No, well, some masks work, the N95s in certain contexts, given the types of variants we're dealing with. Yes, there are studies that show that, but it took time for the studies to be conducted and people wanted answers before then. And so, you know, we're still in a place now where like, okay, when does when do we get the next vaccine? The companies are still figuring it out. Like we're only two and a half years out here. People are like, well, then that must mean why? I'm like, no, it might just mean that they're still figuring it out because this is like a global pandemic like we've never seen before. And yeah. science- o- And it happened way- in lots of countries. When people made it political, I, I always would just expand out because my son lived in Thailand during that mm. whole time. He's a human rights lawyer. And while he was living in Bangkok, they had, in one year, they had like 165 deaths because of yeah. the extremity of their lockdown and masking. And- by the way, they mask anyway because of uh, H1N1. They, you know, swine flu had swept through Asia. So people mask already. So when along came COVID, they were already in a habit and there was just this completely different understanding of what it meant to protect themselves from disease. And so I brought that up quite a bit because I think we get very narrow when we think things are only about the United States. It's why I'm a pretty big fan of travel, living abroad if you can, to expand your imagination, to include a larger pool of information. In fact, this is where I want to go with you here then. When we're talking about red and blue America, I'm wondering if social media has taken away something Americans used to value, which is privacy of thought. Mm. (laughs) I feel like social media makes us declare ourselves, or we think we have to. You know, in the 1990s, before uh, the World Wide Web, I would get together at a park day with a bunch of homeschooling moms. We didn't talk about religion and politics, even though we agreed pretty much on a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we would play with our kids. There'd be a little judginess around breastfeeding versus bottle feeding or paper diapers versus cloth. But you didn't say it out loud, you know? And then like 1996 comes, we hop on our first social media boards, basically bulletin boards, very skeletal back then, full on blood baths. Suddenly everybody is just arguing with true hubris, like cloth diapers are better. And if you don't use them, you're ruining the world. There was this, you know, theological debates. And I'm wondering if this hiding behind the keyboard, if there was sort of like, um, I blame it on school, actually. I feel like we've been trained that when we're typing, we have to be very declarative, that we're writing a paper, that there's one right answer and it will apply to the whole room. And we've lost something of this sort of discretion, this belief that you can have a political or a religious belief and it doesn't have to be stated in in a bold and conversion-oriented way. What do you think about that theory? It, it, there's a story that I read recently and I, I would recommend um, I would recommend everyone mm-hmm. take the moment to read it. There's an Atlantic Monthly story called Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. <laughs> oh God, I love that title. <laughs> and I know you went back to 96. Uh, but this is this is a piece that takes us to the back past ten years and tries to identify the um, the retweet button and the like button on Facebook as part of the issue we're dealing with in America because you get rewarded for your controversial opinion, you get rewarded for your political opinion both by people who hate you and people who like you. That's right. And. It's just, you know, I, I don't know how we reverse ourselves from this because I, I have an anecdote from a, a friend who's a, a school administrator at a, at a university. And she was dealing with issues between students 
and these are you know college students at a at a major a major American university, and you know one was complaining about the other and being like, can you help? You know, can you kick them out of the student organization for their opinion? And she's like, well, have you addressed the opinion with them? Like, well, I tweeted at them that like they're dumb. Okay, you go to school with them, you see them. Have you considered talking to them in person? But it's this feeling, and this gets it gets to it in the story about uniquely stupid that like especially this newest generation feels most comfortable behind that keyboard, and. And there's this dehumanization effect of of putting out those opinions, being like, you know, Jay Bogart Tutu or you know whatever your screen name is, like that was a dumb idea. Like, would you say that to my face? No, you wouldn't. You'd be like, oh, you're a person. Like, I wouldn't say something so nasty. I wouldn't go after your family. I wouldn't like. But you you have the sense of safety, I guess, uh, behind the keyboard. Um, or behind your iPhone, you don't have in person and this lack of human-to-human interactions. And I think this is reinforced by COVID. You know, like, listen, we were all, you know, you're either, and, and everything became extreme. You know, like the people who mask, call the anti-maskers, you're a bad person, you're evil, you're trying to kill people. Whoa. And then the, the people who don't wear masks are like, oh, you're just like a, you know, you'll do whatever the government says. Like you, you know, you, you, you have you'll no You'll put anything your in your body. You aren't interested in protecting right. your health. Yeah, right. all and, of that. And you're going to let this government take control of us and control everything about our lives. And they're like, no, that's not what I'm thinking either. But that's what it became. And you got to say that online. And it really has, you know, continued to re- push this country apart. And then our politics are all based on these primary systems, which is a whole separate issue where the most hardcores in each party vote for their candidates. So your choice in November, when you wake up in November and you vote, you're like, wait, these are my these are my choices. Yes, because the Democrats and Republicans, the only people who turn out in the primaries are the most hardcores and they vote for the most extreme candidates. And that is, and then those extreme candidates say the meanest things to each other. And so anyway, it's like all these things are working in tandem. And I don't mean to be like, to give people less hope, but <laughs> you know, I think- <laughs> yeah. So is your head spinning? I notice when I listen back to this conversation that I was exceptionally eager to engage with Moshe. He has such an amazing way of examining how we consume information. I hope you've enjoyed part one. Stay tuned for part two coming up. If you are subscribed to the podcast, you'll be notified and you'll get to hear the fascinating conclusion to this conversation. Hey everyone, Natalie with the Brave Writer team here again, finding five-star reviews for you. This one comes from Sweetwater v. Soul. Julie is an inspiration. I love Julie's podcast, her book, and her work. She is so smart, open, thoughtful, warm, generous, and funny. The podcast is fabulous, exploring many different facets of homeschool. Thank you, Julie, for your encouragement, knowledge sharing, and inspiration. So great to hear and read. Thank you, Sweetwater V. Soul. Thanks for tuning in today. As a follow-on to this conversation with Mosh, I want to recommend my book, Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. If you're looking for tools and support in understanding how to raise kids in this media-saturated environment, that is the purpose of this book. It is designed specifically to help you raise kids 5 to 18 so that they're wise, they're mindful, they know how to vet sources, 
They understand how to identify perspectives and so that you know how to deal with children as they get older and come up with their own ideas that maybe contradict your family values. You can go to RaisingCriticalThinkers.com to learn more about the book, to download a book club guide. This guide, by the way, can be used personally as well as a source of journal prompts, a list of activities with page numbers, and more. And to just find out what other people are saying about the book, I'm very proud of the fact that Adam Grant blurbed my book. This is the guide parents need to teach their kids to become thoughtful consumers of information. And this one from Sharon McMahon, the creator of Sharon Says So. There is no one I know whose wise counsel I would trust more than Julie Bogart when it comes to teaching our children and ourselves how to think. Critical thinking has never been more important, and Julie arrived just when we needed her. This book is a must for anyone who wants to raise children to be thoughtful, kind, and independent. So if you're looking for a book to help you accomplish many of the goals Moshe and I discussed, I hope you'll consider mine. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you've got an extra minute of time, please leave me a star review. If you've got two minutes of time, write me a little review itself. Natalie loves to find your five-star reviews and read them on the podcast. And if you are not yet subscribed, be sure you do. My podcast release schedule is not as predictable as you might like it to be because sometimes we end up with two episodes in one week. If you are subscribed, you will be notified. Again, it is my honor to come to you through this podcast to share information and guests that I think will help you be great parents and educators. This podcast was produced by Nova Media. Two of my team members, Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele, partner with me to ensure that it comes to you ready to go every week. My name is Julie Bogart. I'm your host, and this is the Brave Writer Podcast. Keep going. Think well. I'm rooting for you. Thank you.